You ready to uh, soak up some more good stuff? This is simple stuff. All right, fossil fairy tales, stumbling stones for evolution. I like puns. All right, I've said these before, but they're worth repeating. And the more you hear it, the more it's going to soak into your brain. Again, the battle is not between scripture and science. That's a false argument that the evolutionists use to lead us away. It is a battle between two belief systems. Evolution is based on man's ever-changing opinion, and they have to keep changing it because as we learn more real stuff, more actual data, their story gets messed with time and time again. And then the biblical model is God's unchanging word that we can always rely on. Okay, there are presuppositions. So which ones are used to interpret the evidence? Everybody has the same evidence. But how we choose to interpret that evidence because it's about the unobservable past. And so you have to do some interpreting. And so rightly, rightfully so, I am accused of believing and starting with God's word to use that to interpret the evidence. Whereas the evolutionists start with that it is not God, and that everything happened randomly by chance, no plan, no purpose, no guide, no God. And science properly interpreted does confirm scripture because the author of the word is the author of the world. He's one and the same, and he does not contradict himself. So among these many unstated assumptions in evolution, there is the one of uniformitarianism, that all physical processes have been going on in the past at the same rate at which we measure them today, unchanged. Okay, another one is materialism. In other words, all that there is is matter and energy. Nothing else, nothing supernatural, only matter and energy. And here's a very simple thing. You can, you can trip them up so easily. Information. We use matter and energy to store information. But information is abstract. It is not material. Information is abstract. Matter does not give rise to information. It can only be used to store information. So where did information come from? It had to be created by a living being. See how simple that is? That one's easy. It has to come from intelligence. So then you say, what is DNA? It's an information system. So where did DNA come from? It had to be from its supreme intelligence. Boy, that was tough, wasn't it? See how easy that is? Information kills them. And everybody deals with computers. So do computers come, rise by themselves? Do their programs create themselves? No. And what happens when you get a glitch, when you get a virus, you get a bug? It doesn't work. It doesn't get better and become more complex. See how simple that is? The age of the Earth is an absolutely crucial point, but not the real issue. Creationists understand this fully, but most Christians in general don't understand this as well as the evolutionists. So that's why the evolutionists focus on creating doubt about chapter 1 of Genesis, then those first 11 chapters. Because if you don't have confidence in those, why mess with the rest of the book? So the real issue is the authority of Scripture. That's the bottom line issue. All right, so we have fossils here. So again, the different lenses. What are your assumptions? Is the history in scripture true or is it not? Well, <clears throat> we're talking about the past. Operational science is in the present. That's how we do experiments, repeat them, get data, and use that to figure out how to do things like make 747s and Computers, laptops, projectors, and most importantly, hair dryers. Right, ladies? All right. So that's operational science. It's in the present time. 
you get an idea of how something works, you do testing, you repeat the testing, you get the results, and you see if it fits your idea of how it works. If it does, great. If it doesn't, you toss it and start over. Okay, it's repeatable, verifiable, falsifiable. That's operational science. Historical science is about the past. It's not observable. It's not repeatable. It's not testable. It's not verifiable. But the story is possibly falsifiable. Well, that's all about evolution. That's, that's what it is. So everything in historical science is based on assumptions. So here's the artist assuming he sees this pile of fossils. He says, assuming it's a fight to the death, red in tooth and claw, bloody finish. So there's the stegosaur. Here's the velociraptor. I'm going to flip the velociraptor upside down. And there he is, upside down. And you say, why did you do that? Because that's how they found these fossils. So there's the stegosaur, and there's the velociraptor upside down. So if the evolutionist, you assume this is a fight to the finish, the struggle, red in tooth and claw, battle for survival, survival of the fittest. But if you don't make that assumption and you become a keen observer, you'll notice that the forelimbs of the stegosaur are missing. They're not there. And you say, well, since I believe in biblical history, I believe the flood washed these two critters together in this position, and that's where they ended up and got buried and turned into mineralized fossils. So how you interpret this depends upon your starting point, whether you take the biblical history or reject it. So the question asked in Job 38.4 is, were you there? God's talking to Job. Were you there when I laid down the foundation of the earth? Okay. And the guy says, well, no, I'm not that old, even though I may look like it. Okay. Well, so here we have, when I was in high school, there's Ramapithecus, and that's how it was presented in the textbook. I remember this very clearly in my sophomore biology course. And this was one of our supposed ancestors. And you see how it looks so similar to a human jaw. Well, it says, until 1977. Why? Because in 1977, they found an intact specimen that wasn't broken, and it turned out to be the same as a chimp jaw. Oh, scratch that. So Ramapithecus got removed from our line of evolution. All right, what about Nebraska? So that's one fairy fossil tale, okay? Here's another one, Nebraska man. So this was found in Nebraska, and um, published in this British newspaper. And based on the tooth, a tooth. So from this tooth, they constructed Nebraska man. Not only that, it got blown up into a whole family. Okay, from one tooth. Turns out the tooth was from an extinct peccary. Now, this Arizona people here, do you know what we have around here that are peccaries? Javelina. They are not pigs. Javelina are not pigs. It's a separate kind. All right. So that was another fossil fairy tale. Piltdown Man. Okay, so this one was, quote, discovered in a quarry in 1920 and was hailed as an intermediate between man and ape. There was a lot of controversy at the time. Some people said flat out yes, other people said flat out no. But it was taught as one of our ancestors between ape and man until 35 years later, a bunch of evolutionists said, hey, how about if we take a look at this thing closer, actually look at the original? So they did, and they were very careful in their observation, and they noticed the teeth had been filed down. 
And so then it turns out that a human skull had actually been dug up from a graveyard. It's about 400 years old. And they took the jaw of an ape type and the teeth, filed it down to make it look intermediate, stained it to make it look old, and buried it so it could be discovered. Outright fraud. Okay. But it had effect on various things in promoting evolution during that time period. Okay, so that's another fossil fairy tale. So here's Ida. So Ida was this fossil found in Germany. And it was hailed as this early ancestor on the way to man. Okay, it was found in this shale type of rock layer in uh, Germany. And the researchers believe it comes from the time when the primate lineage, in other words, the, up, the ones that can walk upright, monkeys, apes, etc., and ultimately humans, split from a separate group that went on to become lemurs and other less well-known species. Lemurs live in Madagascar today. So the celebrated presenter of natural history documentaries on television, David Attenborough, said, now people say, okay, we are primates. Show us the link. The link they would have said up to now is missing. Well, it's no longer missing. So Ida was accepted as this missing link. It was called the eighth wonder of the world. Okay. Big deal was made. Big production with uh, these giant posters and specials and all sorts of stuff, magazines, journals, special conference. National Geographic, missing link found, new fossil links, humans and lemurs. So it was even linked to PBS as saying this is what's happening. <coughs> <coughs> However, <coughs> it's just another lemur and that's it. Just another lemur. No ancestor to us. Tiktolik, you ever hear of Tiktolik? Okay. So this is a creature that lived in the ocean and was said to be the one that crawled out of the ocean and became an amphibian. All right, so here's a reconstruction of what they thought it might look like, emerging from the waters. And here's where they placed it in this line of evolution and showing it with its mouth open, swimming along there. So there's Tiktolik there in the middle with these other transitions from fish to amphibian, as they would like it to be. And that's where they place it in the rock layers at that age, uh, around, what, 370 or so million years ago. And then, wait a minute, what about that? Well, the that is this. In Poland, after all this big commotion about Tiktolik, they found these trackways of a four-legged critter. Well, that means Tiktolik had to have already evolved to the point of having four legs, which it hadn't done yet. But the killer is, this thing is 18 million years earlier than Tiktolik. Oops. So, what has captured the world attention about these, tetrapod means four foot, four-footed trackways, is that they're dated 18 million years older than Tiktolik. So, a four-legged animal existed 18 million years earlier than Tiktolik can't be the translational fossil it has been claimed to be. These results force us to reconsider our whole picture of the transition of, from fish to land animals. Uh, yeah. Okay, so goodbye Tiktolik. What about whale evolution? So this diagram is the supposed sequence from top to bottom till you finally get whales. Okay, so C-E-T, U.S. Cetus means whale. All right, so there's Pacacetus, which means the whale from Pakistan. Rhodocetus, red whale, and these other cetus, 
types supposedly <coughs> evolving all the way down to that. So fossils shown are representatives of the stages of whale evolution, gradual disappearance of hind limbs, transformation of the front limbs from walking legs to swimming fins, flattening of the tail into flukes, are among the changes that emerged in an elegant cascade. Well, first thing to ask is, which land creatures did whales evolve from? So mesonychids means middle claw, middle claw. So here you see a mesonychid, kind of looks like a dog. Okay. So Pachycetus, this was the original find. There you see. So all you see is a skull. From, from that skull, they imagined this transition to a whale. All right. See, like I said, you have to have a very fertile imagination to be an evolutionist. So later on, they found this. Oops. It's a totally land critter. Goodbye, Pachycetus. Fossil fairy tale. What about Rhodocetus? So what you see uh, in the upper drawing, as well as the uh, diagram below is, that's how much skeleton they had. So you see skull, spine, and ribs. Nothing of the tail, nothing of the extremities. Right? Nothing of the tail, nothing extremities. But imagine, see that flattened tail, the flukes there? is all imagination. So this guy who was the big deal in pushing all this said, well, I told you we don't have the tail in Rhodocetus, so we don't know for sure if it had a ball vertebra indicating a fluke or not. So I speculated it might have had a fluke. And they call this science. Now, since then, we found the forelimbs, the hands, and the front arm, the arms, the, in other words, of Rhodocetus, and we understand that it doesn't have the kind of arms that can be spread out like flippers are on a whale. If you don't have flippers, I don't think you can have a fluke tail and really powered swimming. So now I doubt Rhodocetus would have had a fluke tail. So we had to eat his previous words. So goodbye, Rhodocetus. Fossil fairy tale. Well, here's a few other problems. Okay, so here you see Basilosaurus down there in this nice length that fits in with all the other lengths. And Basilosaurus means sovereign lizard. Except, there it is, Basilosaurus. Except the problem is its actual size is this. That's why it's called Sovereign Lizard, a ruler, because it's so doggone big. Okay, so it doesn't fit. The serpentine, meaning snake-like form of the body and the peculiar shape of the cheek teeth make it plain that these ancient whales, archaeocetes, ancient whales, could not possibly have been the ancestor of modern whales. So goodbye, Basilosaurus. Well, here we're looking at a modern whale uh, and then focusing back here on these bones of the supposed disappearing hind limbs. These are supposedly leftovers from when there were full extremities of this thing from the land to the ocean in the evolutionary viewpoint. But actually in real life, these bones are very necessary for muscles to be attached to them so the whales can reproduce, so they can mate. So they definitely have a very important purpose. They're not leftovers of anything. We do not possess a single fossil of the transitional forms between the aforementioned land animals and the whales. So that was said 60 years ago, and it's still true today. Okay, this stuff just doesn't happen, doesn't exist, still true today. Then you have to think about these other problems. The babies are born underwater. 
And they have to know to swim to the surface to take that first breath. Now, how does that evolve? How does it evolve that it has that blowhole on the top behind the neck and not breathe through nostrils and the nose and the face? All sorts of other things involved too that just makes it impossible. All right. So then after apologizing for not making the ark big enough, he suggested we learn to swim. <laughs> How are we ever going to evolve if you people keep pushing us back into the ocean? Archaeopteryx means ancient wing, ancient wing. A real bird that had claws on its wings. Well, we have ostriches today that have claws on the front of the wing. They're not huge, but they're there. And there is another uh, bird, uh, Central America, that has claws as well. Had teeth. Well, there are other fossils. Uh, so here's Archaeopteryx, where it's found in the supposed dating that they use by looking at the rock layers. Okay, well, here's another one Eo Confucius Ornus Zhengi. So Eo means Don, D A W N. Confucius, the Chinese philosopher. Ornus meaning bird. Zhengi, the name of a of an ornithologist, guy who studies birds in China. So this is ancient Chinese philosopher bird named after a current ornithologist. Real bird, full feathers, dating according to where they find it in the rock layers, their system 120 to 130 million years ago. Okay, and so that comes after Archaeopteryx. So you say, okay, that works for them. But now we have another fossil problem called Proto-Avis, first bird. Found in Texas in rock layers that predate Archaeopteryx. So it's like, take a look in those trackways. Oops, Archaeopteryx cannot be the transition from reptile to bird, because Proto-Avis, a fully formed bird, is there beforehand. And there's other problems as well. Evolutionists have found fossils of sandpipers, loons, ducks, flamingos, cormorants, and albatross in dinosaur rock layers. Uh-oh. 1998, Dr. Tom Stidham reported in the prestigious science publication Nature that all major modern bird groups may have lived with the dinosaurs based on genetic and fossil evidence. That's terrible for them because dinosaurs are what are supposed to have evolved into birds. Hmm. Archaeoraptor leoninginsis. So this means ancient raptor, you know, a bird that goes after other critters, named after this uh, province in China. A feathered dinosaur find. And this was given all sorts of publicity by National Geographic, TV specials, big whoop-de-doo in the magazine, etc. Well, problem is, it's a fraud. Some extremely skilled person in China had taken the tail of a bird and attached it to the body of a dinosaur fossil from the same rock layer so that the rock matched. Very, very fine joint between the two. So the National Geographic people had experts, including the guy who's the director of this big museum up in Canada, uh, where there's lots of dinosaur fossils found, examine these things and they declared it, yes, this is great, this is super, this is real. And then about six months later, some other guy said, can we take a look at this too? And they said, okay. So they said, why don't you do a CT scan on this thing? So they did, and sure enough, the joint, the crack showed up where it had been two pieces put together. Another fraud. So it's feathered dinosaur fraud, not find. Okay, these footprints in Eastern Africa Clearly human footprints, but they're in rock layers that are 
much before people were supposed to have evolved. So that's the area where they were found. Okay, and so they try to deny that these were human prints, but they are clearly human prints. Okay, so that's the place called Laetoli there in Tanzania. That's where Lucy was found, which was one of the supposed, for some years, supposed ancestors in our evolutionary history, but Lucy has now been displaced. Said, oh no, oops, nope. So these, the Laetoli footprints, okay, 3.6 million years ago, before people were supposed to have evolved, okay? So they said, no, they can't possibly be of human origin. They've got to be from Lucy and his friends. Turns out Lucy was um, determined to be of the wrong sex. First they thought it was a she, but turns out Lucy is a he. Yeah. Do you know why Lucy was named Lucy? The Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, was on the radio at the dig at the time. Okay. Say again? Yeah, what is a woman? Yeah, right. Yeah, one of our Supreme Court justices can't answer that question. Yeah, right. So these trackways, they say, oh, no. They have to be Lucy, not human. And by the way, the specimens of Lucy had nothing below the knee, no feet, nothing below the wrist, no hands. But they make them look like human feet and hands, etc. Breasts and everything. The whole bit, yeah. yeah. Well, they're mammals. Yeah. So there's Lucy putting down footprints. Isn't that amazing? <coughs> so these are fully human footprints with the pressure points like from the ball of the foot and the heel. So making man out of apes, that's what they were trying to do. So you can see how incomplete the skeleton is. That's all they had? That's all they had. That's all they had? Yeah. What, what have I said? You need to have tremendous imagination. Imagination of a four-year-old. <laughs> I can't comment on that. <laughs> okay. Um, we'll see if this video works. Um, this is the setup. So this is an evolutionist talking. And what he's saying is, this picture, the picture uh, that you're going to see, hopefully, show, begins with this deer hoof that stepped on Lucy's fallen bones and broke them and caused those bones to look like a chimp instead of like a human. Okay, that's how they start this out. So that's why he says this, meaning the deer antelope, some type of hoofed animal, stepped on the bones and made them look like chimp instead of human. That's what he means by anatomically impossible person, uh, position. Okay, because it looked like a chimp. So let's see if this thing will work.
As a result, the angle of the hip looks nothing like a chimp's, but a lot like ours. Science so, at its finest. <laughs> so, manufacturing the evidence, that's medical malpractice. Did they actually do that? All right. Yeah, they actually did that. They showed this on national TV, PBS special. Really? Yeah, and they call it. Not human, but Lucy, this this intermediate that looked like a chimp because it had been stepped on. But after he fixed it, it really looked like a human, which is what it was supposed to be. It's called manufacturing the evidence. Okay? That's what they do. You don't have it, you make it. Okay, whoops, this is, all right, so that takes care of Lucy. Fossil fairy tales. So where is this geologic column you see here? Where is it found in the world? Oh, you mean like that? All right, excellent answer. Why? That's all they got. Imagination. So here's the biblical history. So creation, 4004 BC. These numbers are rounded off. Pre-flood era, 1,565 years. The flood, one year, 371 days. Post-flood, about 4,365 years or so. And now today. It's that simple. All this complicated gobbledygook is their imagination. So here you see Cambrian, bottom next to the bottom, pre-Cambrian and Cambrian uh, period. And so this is when there's the first appearance in the fossil record of these critters that are living in the ocean that do not have spines don't have backbones and it's called an explosion because it's the sudden appearance of these all of a sudden poof nothing below and then all of a sudden poof all of these marine invertebrates so again the definition of marine invertebrate is a, a critter that lives in the sea that doesn't have a spine as opposed to the spineless critters in washington dc <laughs> all right so, here you see a variety of them. And it's called Cambrian because the old Latin name for whales was Cambria. And that's where they were first found. All right. So there you are. Cambrian explosion. Whales. Right there. So there's that sudden appearance in the fossil record. So here's just another representation of these critters that lived on the bottom of the ocean. See there's some pretty exotic shapes there. So here they are represented here and these are the invertebrates, no spine. But there's this Precambrian layer where there's a bunch of these one-celled organisms that are found and whoops Oops, also some invertebrates that weren't supposed to be there. And the ones that are down there don't explain the ones in the Cambrian layer. They have no correlation. So now their problem is doubled because they can't explain how the Cambrian ones got there and they can't explain how the Edicarian ones got there either. Hmm. Well, not only that, there's some fish that are totally out of place. Fish should not be down there with a spine, clear spine there. Shouldn't be down there, but some are found down in those layers. They're out of place fossils according to evolution. Don't belong there. They're not supposed to have arrived yet. And they're found up here in Canada, in this region here. This, this uh, 
pale gray-blue color refers to the Burgess Shale, a type of sedimentary rock. And in Marble Canyon, this particular location is where they found these invertebrates and these fish with spines that aren't supposed to be there. All right. In one study, uh, Bjorn Curtin determined that 88% of the mammal species living in Europe today are also present in the fossil record in Europe, and 99% are present in the fossil record somewhere on Earth. So where in the heck did these things come from? The fossil record is complete. Their excuse for saying that we don't have transitional fossils, we don't have the fossils that show the change from one kind to a different kind, is because we haven't found everything that's out there yet. But this quote shows that, yes, indeed, the fossil record is complete. There aren't missing things out there that would answer these problems of no transitions. So we have the sudden appearance of these basic types, these kinds. Complexity at first appearance, poof, full complexity when they show up in the fossil record. Fully formed. And you see here then starfish and bats, all these things. You see the modern critter and the fossil, which is supposed to be millions and billions of years old. They look the same. Crabs, jellyfish. We have fossils of jellyfish. Now, this jellyfish killed the argument that they don't have transition forms because the soft parts don't get saved. Well, jellyfish are 98% water. You can't get softer than that. Only 2% protein. But we have jellyfish fossils. Seahorses, frogs, same stuff. What is a jellyfish fossil? Pardon me? What's a jellyfish fossil? It's a fossil of that, what's left of that 2% of the protein. The protein got substituted for by minerals. Minerals substituted for the protein. I don't think I'm answering your question. Okay, uh, all right, let me explain more about the word fossil. The word is mostly misused. The word fossil itself just means something that's dug up. It, from the root meaning a pit. This is called the fossa here, this pit in the elbow is called the fossa, antecubital fossa. Fossil is something that's been dug up. Now, there's different kinds of fossils. The great majority of them are ones in which minerals have replaced the parts of animals or plants, where minerals have replaced the parts of animals or plants. While these things were in, in mineral-soaked, mineral-laden water when they were buried. Okay, that's min permineralization. So when we talk about fossils, we should be using the word permineralized, which is what I've been showing you, the stuff that's been turned into rock by minerals replacing the body parts. So the minerals, the mineral picture of the previous jellyfish yes. gets incorporated in the rock? Right. Well it's, the, well, it's the jellyfish and all these other critters and plants get buried as the, as the flood laid down the rock layers, actually not rock layers, silt, sand layers, which then, as they dried out and with pressure, hardened into rock. That's how you form fossils. Okay. Now, other kinds of fossils that are not actually part of an animal or a plant, for example, tube worms, the, the, you know, the channels the, that worms dug in the soil are a fossil. Bird tracks are a fossil, or animal tracks, like those tetrapod tracks. Those are a fossil, but they're not the actual animal because those things are all things that are dug up. The woolly mammoths taken out of the ice are fossils, but they're not permineralized. They're just frozen. So all of those things are fossils, but not all fossils are turned into rock. Does that help? I think I forget what my question is. <laughs> what, 
Okay, the, okay. Well, how do you form a fossil? How do you form a fossil that turns into rock? Is your question? Well, I'm going to answer that way. I'm going to answer that anyway for everybody. Okay, something gets buried. What do you need to make a fossil? Plant or animal that's living gets catastrophically buried, not over long periods of time because it'll rot and decompose before anything can happen if it's not buried catastrophically. So that's the first thing. Catastrophic burial, and the way I like to say it, to be funny, is catastrophic burial of a soon-to-be-dead plant or animal. All right, buried in mineral-rich water under layers of sand, silt, okay? Then the pressure and the heat is then what speeds up this process of minerals replacing the cells, the parts of cells in animals or plants, turning them into a rock. But the permineralized fossil has different composition than the rock that's burying it. So that's how they can see what is the fossil and what is the rock on top of it, around it, because they have different composition. Because the minerals that come out of solution in the water are different than the stuff that buried it. Does that help? Just forget on, in the case of that jellyfish. What so the 2% the of the protein that make up the jellyfish is what gets turned into permineralized, turned into minerals. And so that's how you get that appearance as opposed to the rock around it. Yeah, yeah, jellyfish fossils are not as common as like fish, for example. But we shouldn't be calling them jellyfish. That's no longer correct. They're jellies. Jellies? They're jellies because they're not fish. Oh. So be careful what jelly you eat. <laughs> All right, so spiders, modern spiders and the fossil... Uh, Crawfish, dragonflies, horseshoe crabs, they all look the same as these things that are supposed to be so old. Here's the fossil of a beak. The guy says, so little changed over 30 million years, how come? 100 million old, million year old cricket, no change. How about fungus? Fossils of fungus. Okay. Pardon me? Isn't that correct? Like a horseshoe crab is an organism. They haven't corrected that one yet. It's still, I guess, a form of a crab. Well, funny looking crab to me as far as that part is concerned. But the question is did not that organism exist millions of years ago as, as it does today? The point of all these slides is there's no change over these supposed millions of years okay. and that these millions of years never happened. So they're not evolving. They're not evolving. They're not changing. No change over these supposed millions of years. So where's the evolution? Yes, because everything came from that very first living cell that they can't explain how it came into existence. Everything has common descent from that first living cell. That's their way of thinking. That's why we stress biblical kinds at creation. So, so they don't claim that a certain species like the horseshoe crab didn't need to evolve anymore, so they stopped evolving while everything well, no, because you see in these quotes, they wonder why there isn't further evolution. Oh, so they just don't know. Yeah. yeah well, there's lots of things they don't. Not, there's not evolution. 
There's lots of things they don't know. I remember as a child being told, well, the horseshoe crab has been around since the dinosaurs. But I never thought to question, like, well, why hasn't it evolved? There you go. So that's interesting. Well, it evolves. Things evolve when, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when uh, the successor is more successful at living, I think. Isn't, wouldn't that be? That's uh, part of their thought process, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. If it does very, very well and lasts a million, you know. Well, yeah, but of course these all these million years didn't happen. So, see, so they're out there in left field because these millions of years never happened. Then what's the difference between adaptation and evolving? <sighs> <laughs> okay. I mean, you just opened a can of worms. All right. Evolving through adaptation. Okay, I'm sorry, but you asked for it. <laughs> All right. What's the mechanism of evolution? They say supposedly it's mutations, right? And that natural selection selects mutations. So that whatever has the better variation has adapted and does better. Now here's the whole problem with this. Not once, ever, ever, has there ever been a mutation identified to add information. Never. Ask any, every single evolutionist in the world, and they can't come up with an example of new information from a mutation. Mutations only cause loss of information. Inferior. Say what? They're inferior. No, period. In real life, mutations have only loss of information. Any evolutionist is dying to be able to give you an example of, of a mutation adding information, new information. They can't because it's never been found. Okay, so in your computer, you get a mutation, you get a virus, what happens? You lose function. It's the same thing in our DNA. You get a mutation, you lose function, you get disease or death. Never upward and onward. So they don't have a mechanism anymore that they even thought they had, which they never had in a real life, for evolution to happen. The guys who are honest will admit we don't have a mechanism. They're flailing around because genetics has absolutely killed evolution. Absolutely killed. All by itself, genetics has absolutely killed it. Much less all this other stuff in geology and other areas. <clears throat> So, in the evolutionary way of looking and thinking, the organism is the passive victim. The passive victim. The environment is what's been dictating what happens. That's why they talk about this slow, gradual change, onward forever. And so, through the selection by the environment, well, the environment does not have intelligence, so how can it select? It can't. But that's their model. That's been their model for 100 and what, 50, 60 years, 70 years. All right. So what you have is the failed model of the organism being the passive victim using mutations to get new information to be able to adapt to the new circumstances due to the environment. It doesn't work. That model is dead. It's a dead man walking. All right. The other half of that question is, how do species form from the kinds on the ark? That's a whole nother lecture. But we have excellent answers. We have beautiful answers based in real science. So let me finish this. And if you want, I'll give you some more of the other story, not story. Science. Stories may not be true. Okay, so we have this fossilized fungus. So there's the territory, these are the layers, and that's the actual fossil of the fungus. No change from what we see today. So most fossils are marine invertebrates, by far 
of all fossils are marine invertebrates, 95%. Now here you see, using the colors to differentiate different categories of fossils, and in the white rectangle, those are marine invertebrates. Marine invertebrates, okay, no backbone. Off to the right, then you see all the fish that have a spine, because sharks don't have a bony spine, they have a cartilage spine, okay? So the bony fishes, reptiles, amphibians, birds, and mammals, and then finally man. So the percentage of the remaining 5% that are not marine invertebrates, 4.7% are plants and algae. That leaves you three-tenths of 1%. And we still haven't even gotten to the vertebrates yet. Whoa. So the great majority of vertebrates that are fossils are fish. So we're now down to a tiny, tiny fraction of mammals and birds and reptiles. Then you get down the tiniest fraction that are just mammals. Then the infinitesimally tiny fraction of mammals that walked upright to some degree, meaning the apes and people. They are exceedingly rare. So there are no ancestor-descendant relationships. In other words, there are no transitional forms to say A evolved into B into C into D. Those transitions just are not there. That's why they cling to, well, the fossil record's not complete. No, it's complete by now. It's complete. There are very few human fossils, but they're from post-flood people, after the flood. A few years ago, it was said you could put them all in one coffin. Okay. Okay. Say again. I'm sorry, I just can't hear what you're saying. Why are there not more human fossils? Okay, I thought and we already... said because they deteriorate. Yeah, I think we already addressed that today, but I'll say it again. Okay, people using their brains and taking advantage of the fact that it took a while for the water and the flood to build up were able to escape being buried. And so they got on rafts, whatever, to float, to live to the bitter end. So then they end up floating in the ocean and then they die, starvation, exposure to the elements, and they became fish food. And then their bones dissolve in the water. Okay. I think I just didn't realize that the majority of all the fossils came after flood. Of human fossils are post-flood fossils. Because God said in chapter 6, I will wipe man off the face of the earth. And literally with the flood, he wiped man off the face of the earth. He did what he said he would do. Okay. His previous uh, slide actually shows what you'd expect for the flood. The animals yeah. on the bottom, you know, the, the, the plants being buried, right. the, the fish being buried, the yeah. invertebrates being buried, and the more advanced you are, the more mobile. See, now, yeah. see, there's several factors into the order of the layers of burial. Some of it is size, some of it is shape. Because as things were buried and the earthquakes were going on, things got shook up. And depending upon shape and density, there would be some settling out. Another factor is mobility. So the more mobile, the longer it was able to escape being buried and to move into be higher levels. And man being very mobile and having the brains to figure out to get on something to float. Okay. Good. All right. So, no ancestor-descendant relationships, no transitional fossils. So, the idea that one can go to the fossil record and expect to empirically recover an ancestor-descendant sequence, be it of species, genera, families, or whatever, has been and continues to be a pernicious illusion. 
And it's interesting that he chose the word pernicious because the word pernicious literally means deadly. It means deadly, the deadly illusion. Okay, all phyla. Phyla are these major categories of plants or animals, major categories, are present from the beginning. So here you see representation of different phyla. They're there at the levels. They, they appear suddenly. That all species that have existed of Earth, of all species, nearly 100% are now extinct. Perished in five, the evolutionists say, five cataclysmic events. Well, one, the flood. So the fossil record is a record of extinction not a record of evolution, of wiping out, as in a flood. According to a recent poll, seven out of ten biologists think we are currently in the throes of a sixth mass extinction. Well, you know, it's possible that that's going to become true as the last pages of biblical history come alive, but not for the reason they think. <laughs> hmm, not yet. Fossils are found in catastrophic deposits. You get mixtures of animals and plants from different habitats, different ecosystems thrown together. Why? Because the flood was a giant washing machine, mixing up everything. When my wife and I were in Montana in 2013, we were on a dinosaur dig. And we'll tell, tell them what you experienced. Oh, just walking around, seeing all the zoters. Well, what Marge was pointing out to you. Yeah. We were walking around, and she could point out little dinosaur bones and parts of turtle shells. And I mean, it just looked like gravel as I'm walking around. But she could pick out clam shells. You know, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. Is that yeah, the point is it was stuff from different Areas. biomes, is the yeah. technical word, different biomes that don't live together, yeah. all mixed up together. That's what this means. Could that also be that you have heard the story about mammoths with, uh, with fresh food in their mouths that were found, found frozen in Alaska? Okay, that's a whole different story. So here you see a fossil graveyard where there's remnants of all sorts of critters that don't live together, thrown together by the flood. Violent death. So here you see this, what's called the death pose, where these various animals have their necks extended all the way back. Why? Because as they were being buried, they were gasping for air. And what do you do when you have trouble breathing? Do you do this? No. You do this to maximize opening. Clams. How do we find clams on the seashore? Open, right? How do we find them in fossils? They're closed. They got buried because they stay closed until they die. There are plenty of uh, closed dead clams. But Say what? There are, there are plenty of closed dead clams. I speak to that from being clam but they were, were they up on the surface? Within this spot, sure. They were, they were still in the ground. Yeah. That's what I'm saying, buried. They were still, because they weren't open on the surface, they weren't on the surface to open. Okay. okay, well there's one in the death pose on the shoulder. <laughs> Tattoo. Pretty crazy, huh? Okay, so the standard belief, the evolutionary time scale is in billions of years. Fossil record, gradual progression over hundreds of millions of years as they would like to think of it. Large canyons over hundreds of millions of years, but they formed catastrophically in the latter stages of the flood. Fossil fuels, hundreds of millions of years, but yet we know they can be made very rapidly if you put enough energy into it. 
Carbon-14, we talked about that. It has to be less than 80,000 years to still have carbon-14 measurable uh, found. Stalactites, fossil formation, we're told hundreds of thousands of years. As I was mentioning today, uh, down in Karchner Caverns, they still had one still forming in the time period since the opening of the caverns. And uh, someone broke it off because it was bad evidence against the evolutionary time frame. And it, below the Lincoln Monument, which is made out of marble, there are stalactites that have formed underneath the Lincoln Monument. So there's the contrast between their time frame and the biblical time frame. So is there a real progression from simple to more complex? And the answer is not due to evolution, due to these other factors of size, density, shape, where they lived. If they lived in the bottom of the ocean, they're going to get buried first. Then if they lived higher up in the ocean, next. They lived on the seashore, next. They lived inland. And mobility. OK, so local fossil sequences. Ah, just what I said. There we go. Okay, now this is what I said earlier, I'll repeat it here. How to form a fossil. So we're told that something dies, falls to the bottom of the ocean, and eventually got buried. Wrong. It becomes food for fish, or it decays, decomposes. So you have this soon-to-be-dead plant or animal, swimming along happily, catastrophic burial, Mineral-laden water, pressure and heat, but not much time. Don't need much time to form a fossil. So here is catastrophic burial. The ichthyosaur in the process of giving birth. The baby's halfway out. Catastrophic burial. Hagfish. That's what a living hagfish looks like. There's a fossil of one on the bottom. These things have lots of mucus. So you see that mucus that got squirted out. This thing was catastrophically buried. OK, this business of Lazarus taxa, this means things which we were told were extinct and gone forever. But oops, they're still around. So there's Lazarus. OK, so this is coelacanth, supposedly dead for oh, a couple hundred, 380 million years ago. I mean, uh, lived 380 million years ago, extinct for 80 million years, live and well swimming in the Indian Ocean. Wallamai pine, alive and well in Australia in a national park 100 miles from Sydney. These other animals or plants supposedly extinct, but they are still alive, rediscovered. All sorts of goodies. They keep finding these. Okay, okay. This one not only is a is Lazarus, but it's also in the wrong place. It's not supposed to be where it's found. Trilobites. Okay, they come from very large like that to very small, uh, smaller than a penny. This is the compound eye of a trilobite. So like butterflies have compound eyes, honeybees, they have thousands of lenses in each eye. We have one in each eye. So each of those is a lens. And guess what? They're not made out of organic material, uh, carbon-based molecules like everything else in biology. These are calcium carbonate crystals. These are inorganic crystals, the lenses of those eyes. How in the world did that evolve? So there's calcite in various forms, calcium carbonate. just depends upon temperature and pressure, what form it takes. So there you see it does form these clear crystals under the right condition. So here's our lens. It's you know oval-shaped, like so. That's the shape of the lens of the trilobite. You say, wow, that's weird. But physicists have evaluated these, and they say they're the perfect shape for seeing true distance underwater. 
So when we swim underwater with our eyes open, we don't see true distance, right? When you tried to swim to the edge of the pool, it's not the distance you thought it was. So trilobites saw true distance underwater, which was good so that they could escape being eaten or find what they want to eat. And this is up in uh, Colorado, Fossil Bed uh, National Monument. So this is what's left of a redwood tree. You say redwoods in Colorado? Hmm, well, not today, but during the flood, up to the flood, yes. Questions? Um, back when you were showing about the whales, am I correct that they are saying or believe that whales evolved from land animals? Yeah. Because I thought all evolution, I thought the whole concept was everything started in the ocean and then came up and spread from there. I'm just surprised. Yeah, but the whales, dolphins, porpoises, manatees evolved and went back into the ocean. Because they're mammals. Because they're mammals. Oh, <laughs> I never, I never heard it that way. So I was just like, what? That's what they say. Because they're mammals. Good question. Anything else? Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about Him. Today is the day to decide to become His child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10.9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know Him. Do you know Him? Do you want to know Him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of His family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.